study that we got to go to through last week, and so we're going to go ahead and finish that up and uh, see what the Lord has to speak to us this morning. So go ahead over in Haggai 2. Haggai chapter 2. You guys remember last week we were going over Haggai 1, which was talking about basically Haggai is coming in there and telling them what's going on because you guys started a great foundation. You guys have the altar built for the temple, but then you stopped working on that and went and did your own thing and did your own houses. And your excuse was is that, well, this is not the time to do God's work. And so we went through that, and it was, it was a great study. Um, you guys can check it out. I think it's uh, on Facebook. And uh, go over that if you haven't heard it, because it'll, it'll, uh, today's going to build off of what we studied over last week. And so just calling us out, you know, if, if we set up that foundation in our lives and then we've just stopped, and, you know, we're in this 14 years of just lag and, and doing our own thing and, and living for self and, and glorifying self, and it's all about us, and then God calls us back to living for him, doing his work, being a part of his work. And so chapter 2, Haggai goes into, well, what does that look like? And I love that he doesn't just come on and say, you guys are doing it wrong, you're bad in what you're doing, and you should fix it, and then see you later. But chapter 2 brings in this correction on how do we do that? How does this, this work of the Lord happen? What does that look like? And so we'll be going through three different things this morning, or four different, sorry, on what the work of the Lord needs from us, Okay. And I'm not saying like God has to have us or any of that, but you know that we're a part of his work. And so what's our responsibility in that? So the four things will be unity. We have to have unity to do the work of the Lord. We have to have clean hands. There's going to be correction, which is good. And then we need leadership. And these things are what are shown. And you could put a lot of other things, oh yeah, you need this too. And, and, but this is where Haggai is going. This is what he's talking about in chapter 2. And so that's what we're going to study on this morning. And I like Haggai. He's, he's one of those guys that, uh, you know, just has a little bit to say, but it's very to the point. And uh, uh, maybe it was just the morning time with him. He's like me, and he doesn't like to talk in the morning when he wrote these. And so it was very short and to the point. Um, who knows? But he's, Zachariah gets in there, and he definitely goes off a little bit more than Haggai. So as we go through it, again, this is where he's starting out, is in the time where they're beginning again to build the temple. And so that's where it's in uh, 520 B.C., and it's actually the month of October. And it's important to know that because during this month, when this is given to them is during the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, their most holy day within the Jewish customs. And it was the time that they took care of sin for the nation, right? Uh, it was the time of repentance for them. And then the other one was Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, which is where they would remember what... God did for them in the wilderness, and so they go build their little tabernacles outside of the city and live in them for a time just to remember the provision that God gave them while they're out in the wilderness. This is important because Haggai is actually going to re- reference back to these two feasts because they're, they're happening at this time, or they already happened um, as he goes through it. And so it's a reminder of, you guys remember what he did in Egypt for us, and remember this atonement that we have. And so that'll be part of his focus and what he goes through is, as we study through it, and so you know, when he gets into this and, and he starts studying with the people and he talks to them and brings God's word, he has to bring some things out that are troubling. And so let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 3 to see where he's at. It says, In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, 
governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? And Lord, as we just come to you this morning, and we're going to study through the second book that you've given us. Lord, I pray that we would just have our eyes open. And uh, Lord, you just fill us with your spirit. You guide us unto all the truth that you want to show to us. Um, Lord, just help me, just, as it, just that it connects. Uh, it's very clear, Lord, that I don't get in your way. And uh, Lord, that you just teach us as we study through your word and, and you show us what this work of yours consists of and what our responsibilities are in it. And uh, Lord, that we just gather together to be ready to do your work and to continue to do your work that you're doing in our lives and even outside of it in this church. And we just praise you for all the prayer requests, Lord, that we've been given to you and just getting the team back. We, we thank you so much for answering our prayers, Lord, and you care so much for them. Uh, we continue to ask that you be a blessing on those women as they are now back in their homes and uh, as they, they pour out all the awesome things and the blessings you gave them to their husbands and they encourage their husbands, Lord. And so... Just keep them safe as they uh, are doing their ministries in that country, Lord, and uh, just help us to remember our brothers and sisters over there often so we can lift them up to you. And uh, we just pray these things in your name. Amen. And so that seventh month is October. The 21st of the month is already, it's already happened that the Day of Atonement, Day of Atonement usually is on October 8th, and then the day of uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is October 13th. So these feasts have already happened, okay? So they're, they're, but they're very present. The people remember this thing. Haggai goes into it, and he says, okay, I'm going to speak through these guys, the two leaders that we talked about last week, right, Zerubbabel and Joshua, Zerubbabel being the governor and Joshua being the high priest, and he asks them, and he addresses something that needs to be addressed right away, because there's a division that's happened. There's a division that's going on before the work of the Lord can continue, and so he points out, and he says, basically, he's going back to the older people. And he's saying, who of you guys remembers the former temple? And you guys remember what the former temple was? It was Solomon's temple, right? And we hear about that. Solomon's temple, the guy had all the riches he ever needed, all the the best workers you could ever have, the most talented workers in building the temple where there was people that were coming from all other nations to come and look at that temple, to look at what Solomon had built up, right? Well, these guys knew about it. There was old people that were still there that had seen that temple in all of its glory, Watch it get wiped out. And so, yeah, there's a lot of sadness that was there. But Haggai needs to call them out because we know that there's a lot of things that were holding the people back. And last week we didn't talk about this because we're going to save it. But last week we had mentioned that one of the things that held them back was because the enemies were hiring consultants to come in there and confuse them, right? That's one of the reasons they were having a hard time working and continuing the building. The other one was that they started coming over there with arms and telling them, you guys are going to stop working on the temple. Like, okay. That's fine, I got my house I can work on. I got something I can do. And so they stopped it. But one of the other things was, was the discouragement from the older people. There was discouragement that was brought in from them because of their good old days thought. The thought back to, well, this is what it used to be. And if you guys turn over to Ezra chapter 3 with me, we're going to look at this and see what was going on during this time. Right after the... the um, foundation. So it wasn't during this time. This was the 14 years prior. It was right after they got the foundation built. But just the attitude of the older people or the people that saw uh, the former glory. So Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. 
It says in, in verse 10, it says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, and the symbols of the praise of the Lord, according to the ordinance of, king, of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Exciting times, right? They're excited on what just happened. They're seeing this thing go forward. This is good. And this happens so many times where we'd be excited about a work of the Lord or something that's happened in our life. And then all of a sudden, verse 12 happens. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers of the houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. You guys can turn back over to Haggai, but you get to see in this whole instance, there's a lot of joy that's happening. There's excitement about the work God's doing. There's this new progress. There's this, we're back in the land. We're doing God's things. We're doing it his way. And then you have the people come in to talk about the good old days. You have the people to refer back to how much better it was before, right? It's a sad deal because there was so much discouragement that was brought in on that. And we'll see that in just a second in Haggai as we go over it again. But what they did is it was such a downer to the hard workers that were excited about doing the work. And it's already hard to get people that want to work hard, isn't it? I mean, I think if you guys are a contractor or anybody even in an office or wherever, trying to get people to work hard can be a huge chore. And one of the biggest things that you get them to work hard is because they feel like they have some kind of an ownership. They have some kind of pride in their work, and so they're excited to do that work. And you strip that from them, and all of a sudden they have nothing. They have no reason to keep and work hard on what they're doing, right? If that discouragement is brought in there, then they're like, well, basically I'm just here for a paycheck. And if there is no paycheck, it's like, well, <laughs> who are you to tell me what to do? Uh, you know, and then this whole negative attitude ends up coming in. And I've seen it so many times in ministry where you have a young person that's so excited, has ideas you know, about how to do something different with the ministry. And then the veteran ministry person says, that's lame, we've done that before. <laughs> you know, or, or that doesn't work. Or, you know, people really aren't going to, that doesn't, people aren't going to react to what you're talking about. And it's immediately, it's like they just shoot down the younger person and their thought of what maybe ministry could look like in this little bit different way or or try this something new. And I want to make sure that, yeah, there is wisdom a lot of times in what the veteran has to say because they have seen a lot and they've seen things not work out and they've seen, but the attitude behind it is what needs to be checked. When it's a, that doesn't work, or, you know, what were you thinking? (laughs) And discouraging to that younger person, or that person's not even just young in age, but young to the ministry, they come in excited about it, and immediately they're shot down because the veteran says, yeah, we've done it before, or the other thing is, is, yeah, that worked back then, and we had a great time. We did great things. There is all these people coming to the Lord, but it's different now. It's different, so it doesn't work that way. We're just going to keep going steadily, and we're not going to change. This is all good how it is. And a lot of times that younger person, and how I've seen it in the ministries I've been involved with before, is 
either they stay around and they're very discouraged in their work and they don't really own the work. They just do it because they know they want to serve God and that's what they keep doing. So they're faithful in what they do, but there's no passion behind it. Or the other thing is they just move on to another ministry. You know, they move on to another mission field. They move on to another church because they're excited about what God's doing in their life and they want to share that with other people and they want to be involved in his ministry. But they've come and countered this group that says no. We won't do things that way. This is how we've always done it. This is what the glory days, this is what produced things. And I've even seen it within uh, the Calvary Chapel movement in that there is these awesome glory days. You guys know, back in the hippie days, it was unbelievable what was happening. I mean, what Chuck Smith and his wife Kay were doing, and you guys, some of you guys were involved in that and got to be a part of that. And I love hearing the stories, and I love watching the old videotapes where, like, Chuck is sitting on a little, you know, like a cajon. I guess we don't have one up here, but a box in the middle of all these hippies that are all singing around him with the guitars. And he's just out there teaching to all of them around as they're gathered. And uh, there's no form to it, you know. It's something that's very rare even to that church back then because it was, you know, you get a preacher up front, he's got a suit on, and that's how you teach the people. That was how it was done. And he came in and he rocked the world. And he went to the people that needed it, and he did things differently. You know, he let them come into the church barefoot. And uh, there's even a great story, and some of you guys have heard that story, where the elders come to Chuck and they say, hey, you need to tell those people to wear shoes because they're ruining our carpet. I mean, it was like there's black paths on the carpet where you could see where they've been walking. It's kind of gross, right? Well, what ends up happening is that Chuck says, well, I guess we're going to have to rip the carpet out because of what was going on, right? He was focused on the people and what they're doing. It was completely foreign to what needed to be done. It was completely foreign to how things had been done before, but there was this new vision that God had given him, and uh, that's what he was going with. So that discouragement that comes in, you guys have seen, uh, I'm sure it's happened to you, you've maybe even been discouraged in it, but what that happens when that ministry or a young person comes in, there's two things that will happen when the person uh, that's been around for a while, and it says that discouragement will come in and resentment, and even resentment towards the older generation. Um, that's something that happened to me when I first got into church, and I just shared this with the U-turn guys that we were out there uh, playing with the rocks, is that my mentality was I wanted to go and show the church how off they were and how unaccepting they were. So, you know, I was a punk rocker. I had my blue mohawk. I had my patches all over me, and I'd purposely go into the most conservative church I could find just so that I could show them how disgusting they were that they wouldn't talk to me or they would even make dirty looks at me, you know, and I thrived off of that. <laughs> I wanted to show them how off they were, and, and uh, it was really stupid on my part. I was young at the time. And here I was judging the churches, they were judging me. It wasn't right, but I had a resentment. I had a resentment because I'd been told a lot of things weren't going to work. You know, I've been told that you can't go to those people and share Christ with them and look the way you do. And, and a lot of these things that were even in my own life, and I was super discouraged in the ministry, and I, I resented those older people, and so I wanted to show them they're wrong, because that's what you do is when you're 20. You show the older people they're wrong, right? That's your job. <laughs> that's what's going on here. There's this division that's taking place, and it needs to be dealt with, and that's why Haggai goes into it, and he wants to talk about it to encourage them to come back together. And the younger generation that we have today, guys, is so important. I just learned yesterday, I went to a youth conference up in Rocky Mountain in a place where we could get our team together and kind of get some vision and some direction going. Um, and they had mentioned that most people that come to Jesus Christ nowadays are in between the ages of 14 to 18. 
82% of people that come to Jesus Christ, that's the ages that they do it. Now, they might walk away after that or whatever, but that is such a key age. Our youth are very important to us. They're very important. I'm not just saying that because I'm the youth pastor and I have a passion for the youth, but it's, it's a very, very important ministry that we have in encouraging them to use what they have, their gifts God's given them, to use it in their culture, and we as the veterans of the older generations guide them. Not discourage, but guide them, because we still need to guide. It's not one of these things that, hey, older people need to just be quiet and let the younger people do what they need to. That would be a horrible situation. That'd be, yeah. You'd have a bunch of blue-haired you know, mohawk guys trying to do church in a very wrong way. You've got to have direction from them. But it's all about that attitude behind it. And making sure as those veterans, as those people look back and don't focus on how things used to be. It will discourage you. Even you looking back on that will discourage you. Well, we used to have, you know, the, this great person that used to teach us all the time, and, and I was a lot closer to him, or, or you know, or, or the ministry was so much, we were doing it all together before, and, and that was so much better in those times, and all the focus is back on the glory days and how good it used to be when there's people now, and especially in our church now, specifically our church, there's a lot of new people coming in. Our church is growing. And if the focus is always back on how it used to be and the focus there, what gets done for today? A lot of people miss out. You miss out on being able to talk to a lot of people and minister to them. You miss out on that work that God's asking you to be putting into these lives and helping out people and not bringing in that discouragement. And so... There has to be guidance, definitely from the older people, but there also has to be uh, a softness, you know, uh, an understanding for the youth, and, and even letting them try things that you know that they're pro- they may fail at, but then they get to see, okay, that didn't work, how can we do this different, and just working with them. It's a beautiful thing when the church works that way together. And so that's why in verse 3 in Haggai chapter 2, he calls out the older people, and he says, who's left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? What is your perspective on the work God is doing right now? What is your perspective? And this is what their perspective was. In comparison with it, is it not in your eyes as nothing? So they were looking at the work of God that was going to happen because he was using the people then. They were looking at it as it was nothing because of what they knew it to be. And God might want to use a ministry, he might want to use a church in a different way than what it was used 20 years ago, 15 years ago. He might want to do something a little bit different. And just because it's not as glorified, it's not as many people coming to Christ as it was at the first, is that to say that, hey, you know what? This is what they said. It's of nothing. This has no value. No, God will do awesome things. And we're going to see that in just a second. That Actually, the second temple, even though it wasn't going to be the prettiest like Solomon's temple, and Herod actually tried to make it that way, and some people say that Herod actually did surpass Solomon's temple. But at this moment, it was shabby in comparison to Solomon's temple. But what was going to happen in the future and what they were building for the future was the most important part because there was going to be a glory that was going to come in there that was unmatched, speaking of Jesus Christ coming, right? So what a neat thing to be a part of that work of what's going to enter in in the future. And they didn't know that was going to happen, and a lot of times we have no idea what's going to happen when we're involved in God's work. We don't know what he's going to do, even in our own personal lives. We have no idea. We might even be looking at those glory days in our old life, remembering all the things God used to do with us when we were younger, all the things that I got to be a part of, all these ministries I was a part of, and now, you know, I may, it's hard enough just to make it to church on Sunday. 
but God has some new work he wants to do in you. He's not done. There's a new work he wants to work in you. There's a lot of young people in here that need wisdom. They need wisdom. They want to hear about what happened before. They want to hear about how good God was, but they also want you to be involved in what God's doing now with them. I mean, me as a younger guy, I would love to have guys come and tell me about that stuff and we could celebrate God together and I would get ideas on how, okay, that sounds great how you guys did that. Now, how did this work? You know, just to brainstorm, it's a good thing and helps me and my generation even. So don't discount that. It's a bad thing when our church has the generation that's younger does not like the older generation because they're always down on them and the older generation is always looking down on the youth because they see no value in what they're into. They see no value because of now what they're doing. They see that, oh, they're on just a bunch of worse sinners than we were. I mean, just stop and think back about how your generation was. I'm pretty sure it wasn't perfect, right? <laughs> Every generation's got its things that's messed up. Every generation has its new thing it's into that the older generation just despises, right? Think back about all the people before you, you all the older generation, and how they used to talk down to your generation, whether it was what you guys were smoking, what you're drinking now, what you're dancing, you know, what you guys, that's all you ever did, or, you know, the cars that you had or whatever, and now it's all about the technology you have, the time you're spending, and uh, it's just all evil, right? We've got to be careful. You guys say that too much to a younger person, you think you're going to have any value in speaking into their life? Well, you're always coming down on them. What they do and when their interests that they're in, you want nothing to do with. And so there's not going to be any connection there. And so Haggai's bringing them out like, guys, your eyes are saying this is nothing. Remember the people that are building this temple, it is something to them. That would be a horrible work to think as you're putting these things together and saying this has no value. This has no value. I mean, that's what I did as a tile guy when I first came back because I love ministry. I wanted to be a part of it. Now all of a sudden I'm a tile guy and I used to set the tile and I would seriously call it to God and say, why are you doing this to me? And I'd set the tile and I'd be like, this is going to burn. This is going to burn. This is going to burn. <laughs> like there's no value to what I'm doing here. You know, <laughs> I'm putting things down and I'm building houses that are all going to burn someday. There's no eternal value to them. And God, you know, he's very patient. Just, I'm sure shaking his head like, look around you. Right now you're on your knees before me. You could be having a great time talking with me instead of complaining. You know, you have people that come in that you could be speaking to. You have these, these customers you could be sharing me with, and you're so consumed on, this is not fair, I'm not content, these are going to burn, you know, all this garbage. I needed somebody, and there's many times even Chuck would come and encourage me. You know, he's an encouragement on, on getting me back focused where I was supposed to be. And, and, you know, knowing God's work, he'd bring in great testimony of what God was doing, and it was such an encouragement to get to hear that. So, I would ask you this, is this new generation in your eyes as nothing? Is this new generation as nothing? The generation below you. Is this new work in your eyes as nothing? You know, is this new leader, this new pastor, this new whatever, is it nothing in your eyes? Be careful on where you go. Stop comparing to what it used to be. God's doing a work now. Stop taking your life now and saying it was so much better. My marriage was so much better before. You know, my kids were so much better before. <laughs> you know, all these things were so much better before, and it's always this constant looking back and comparing it with now. It's, it, it's going to be, it's going to deprive you of that joy that God wants to give you and the work he's doing right now. It's going to take your focus off of what God wants you to do right now. It's going to discourage you to where you're going to go into a slum of 14 years and not do anything anymore and start trying to do stuff for yourself. 
Stop comparing. Let's read on. Verses 4 and 5. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. And now, back to that unity. I mean, he's calling them out to unity, but here's how we work together. There's three different things in here that he tells us to work together in this. The first one is, he says, be strong. A couple times, right? We're going to do the work of the Lord together. He says to be strong. Over in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Another place that Paul is encouraging the church in Ephesus to also be strong. In chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 10 through 13, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Like, that's where you're sourcing it from. Put the whole armor of God on, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, stand. Right? And then the other one that he talks about in Back in Haggai chapter 4, he goes through and he says, be strong. He tells the, the leader to be strong. He tells the high priest to be strong. And he tells the people to be strong. And then he says, and work. I love that. He's just like, okay, we're going to make this easy, guys. You need to be strong in, in God. That's where your power is going to source from. And don't stop there. Because now you need to work. You've got to actually do something. We see this over in Colossians 3.23. In Colossians 3.23, there's an encouragement again that Paul gives. And he says, and, whatsoever, or, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Right? So the power source from that, the focus should be on doing what the Lord has asked to do and doing it for him, not as unto men. And then also in Galatians 6.9, he says, and let us not grow weary while, we, while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Keep going, work, do the works that God's called us to. And then that last one he says over in Haggai chapter 2, verse 5, he says at the very end there, do not fear, right? Fear cripples, doesn't it? Fear will take focus off of what God's work is, and it's a scary thing. It's all of a sudden this trust is lost. And we have great, I mean, there's so many verses about where we should be putting our focus, um, not fearing, you know, God calls us out and asks us not to fear all the time because we have him who's conquered all. And the verse that I'm going to go to is in Isaiah, just for that encouragement, in Isaiah 41. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my right righteousness, or my righteous right hand. God will hold us up. So it's by his power. We do it because it's for him, not for anybody else. And he's the one that's going to hold us up, so we don't need to fear. It's his righteous hand that's going to hold us up. 
And so that's what he's calling them out to. They have that unity to do the work of the Lord. We need to be strong. We have to do something. We have to work. And don't be afraid. And that's when he brings in, you know, they just got done doing the, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles where they're remembering what God did. And that's why in verse 5 he says, uh, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. Like, I took care of you guys. You guys just remembered that. You just did a feast to remember I, I provide for you. I'm there for you. I call you to a work, and I'm there for you. And then he goes and he says, and my spirit remains among you, so don't fear. In the Old Testament, we see that all the time the spirit was among the people, right? That was awesome. When the spirit was among them, they're they right there with the Lord. There was no idolatry going on. There was a focus on him. There was, let's get this work done for the Lord. Nowadays, we even get a better thing. And we talked about this last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. It says that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Now in the New Testament, so Old Testament says the Spirit is among you. New Testament says he's in us. He's in us. What an awesome thing because of that power that God's given us. And we have the Spirit that is in us to do his work, to not be afraid. And just remember that when these things that God brings to you guys, when these works that he's asking you to do, and even in your own life or in the ministry you're in, he's got it. He's going to provide the power to do it. You just walk in obedience and don't be afraid of what's going to happen. Don't be afraid. He's got us, especially if he's going to call us to work. He does not just leave us out there. Now in verses 6 through 9, in chapter 2 of Haggai, uh-oh, again this week. We got new batteries, so it might just be this cord. All right, verse 6 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, is it a little, a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this later temple or latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. God says a lot there, and it's an encouragement to the people. It's like, here's where you guys focus. You guys are looking at just material stuff. You're looking at how hard this project's going to be. You're looking at the enemy surrounding you, telling you don't touch it, leave it alone. You're looking at this confusion that's happened. Don't focus on those things. You guys have to understand what's going to be in this place, that you guys are a part of a future work that's going to be something that's going to shake this whole world. And he says, it's going to happen. It's going to be once more. And so what is he talking about that once more? Well, when the law was given, do you guys remember that the Mount Sinai shook? The earth shook when the law was given? So that's what he's referring back to. Again, they just talked about the Feast of Tabernacles, so they just talked about being out there with, in the wilderness with him, so they know that. So that first time it shook when the law was given, and now he's saying, you guys think that was a big deal. The heavens will shake, earth will shake, land will shake, the sea will shake. That's the work you get to be a part of. That's the work that's going to happen. Stop looking at just what the world has to offer, or just these beautiful things that we see with our eyes that are all going to end up burning anyways. Like you're going to be a part of a work that's so much bigger than that. And he calls every one of us to that. It's good to go and do things like put rock on the hillside. I mean, I enjoyed the time, and I hope you guys did just hanging out. I mean, it's, yeah, the body's not happy with it, but... You're getting to do with the U-turn, guys. It was a good day. We had a lot of fun. We ate some good food, and it was a good time of fellowship. There was that work that needed to be done, 
you know, and all that's going to disappear someday. But what we got to talk about in our conversations we got to do and the encouragement we brought to each other, I mean, what is that value? There's a lot of things we were working to people's future in that and what they're going to be walking with the Lord and good encouragement that later on will come out. So we look for those ministry opportunities that we get to do things physically, but also why are we in the middle of doing that? Does the work really matter? And this is something God had to call me out a long time ago because I was raised that you get the work done. That's the most important thing. That's your witness. So you show up to a job five minutes early or you're late and you're there to work and you don't take breaks. You work through everything to show them how hard of a worker you are because you're there not to get a paycheck. You're there to get the work done. That's how I was raised. So I get to Bible college. I'm in charge of the whole tile crew. I get all these young kids that would come and work for me. First question I ask them is, what does your dad do for a living? Because I knew probably what kind of worker I was going to be. So, you know, I, I got the guy that was, well, he's doing this. I'm like, okay, where's the farmer kid at? <laughs> you know, and I would immediately just judge where these kids were and, and what they had. And my whole purpose was I'd been given an order to get these things done. I was going to use these kids to get that work done. And I remember chewing this kid out because he could care less. He'd show up. You know, he'd do half the job. I told him, go clean up the golf cart because we didn't have much work. I go over there, half the golf cart's done, cleaned. It was like, seriously, he just wiped it down and then walked away. So I was furious because that's how I was taught. You get upset, you get in their face, and then you know, that'll correct the situation, right? So I get upset, I yell at him, tell him how he's at Bible college, he's not doing any work for the Lord, what is his whole perspective, why is he even here? I mean, I was just bashing this kid. And right in the middle of it, the Lord said, shut up. <laughs> Do you think it really matters that that golf cart is clean? It's going to get dirty the next day. Does it really matter that that's doing it? Do you think I really gave that kid to you so that you could just get your golf cart cleaned? Or is there something a lot deeper there? And from that day on, the Lord showed me that it's not about the work, it's about the people doing the work. It's about using that work, still being diligent in that work to get it done, but using that to shape a person and grow them closer to Jesus Christ. And I went and apologized to that kid. I said, you know what? I was out of line when I was yelling at you the other day, and I'm sorry. And he didn't even want to talk to me. He was avoiding me. And he's like, yeah, whatever. Walks off. I deserved it. I was a jerk to him. <laughs> That's how I knew to be. Three days later, he comes back up to me, and he says, hey, I really appreciate it. I needed to be chewed out that day, but the biggest thing that mattered to me was that you came and apologized for how you acted. And uh, I needed to hear those things because I've been slacking off on all my studies in school and I really, I wasn't taking it serious. Um, but really what made me listen is because you came back and, and you saw me as a person. And I was like, all right, thank you, Lord, lesson learned. <laughs> it was good. That's what he's getting after, guys. The work isn't, but what is God gonna do through this work? What is he gonna do through this? What is God gonna do through the work that he's put you guys over? The jobs that you guys hold, the families that you guys are the patriarch over, or matriarch. You guys, what has he put you over? Yes, there's work that needs to be done. We want to do it unto him. What's the end goal, though? Think God has given you that job just so that you can get retirement? <laughs> Is that the whole purpose? I mean, that's what the world says. Work, work hard, work hard, work hard, and then get retirement. And then there's all these sad stories out here, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not trying to bash you guys, but where they get to that retirement, and then two weeks later, they pass. Their whole life has been to store up that last bit. We're going to have a great time. We're not going to have to do any of this. And then all of a sudden, God is like, okay, hey, you're done. 
and all those years you had to do his work in what you were doing. Like, focus on the now. That's what he's calling us out to do. Focus on what's going on now. What are the people he's wanting me to reach right now? Who are these coworkers he wanting me to reach? Yeah, you know what? You guys might get persecuted a little bit. You know what? Some of you guys even might lose your job because you're preaching the gospel. Is it not worth it? Can you trust him enough? We're about to get into the trust part. Can you trust him enough to do that? Moving on. He goes into it and, and you know, he talks about this glory that's going to come, this awesome work that they get to work towards the future, things that we get to be involved in. And then in verse 10 he says, on the, 10th, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, or Darius, sorry, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, now, ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge of it touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? And so the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. And Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And so this is where they get called out. Are the hands clean? So when God calls us back to do a work of his, the thing is there needs to be a repentance that happens as well. We can't be doing God's work in sin. It's cheap. It's about you. And it's so cool that there's so many times that when a lot of people come together and there's this huge repentance that happens, God does an amazing work after it, right? So many times in history, there's, there's evidence after evidence of that happening because now they can move forward because there's not anything holding them back. Then the other thing it's talking about and what it's going through is it's saying that, guys, you need to wake up just because you touch, you touch something holy or you listen to something holy or you go somewhere holy does not make you holy. And that's what he's trying to show them is that just because you rub up against a little bit of holiness, just because you guys built a foundation and you did an altar and you guys just got done with these feasts does not mean you're in a right place with God. Because there's unclean, uncleanliness that needs to be dealt with. And he, he refers kind of back to like a sickness, you know, the, the kid gets sick, it's not as if a sick kid's sitting there and all of a sudden a healthy kid comes by and they get the health from them. That never happens. Health is not contagious, is it? The sickness is. The same thing with our sin, if it's not dealt with, it just keeps going on and even can spread to others. It's got to be dealt with. And just because we do these little fancy things and try to rub up against something holy, it doesn't take care of it. And that's what God's calling them out there and saying, to do this work, guys, you guys first have a problem here. There's a problem going on with you. You're unclean. And that needs to be dealt with. And don't fool yourselves into thinking that just because you bring me a sacrifice is what's going to deal with this uncleanliness in you. Right? We know over in Psalms 51, if you guys want to turn there, it also says it in Isaiah 2, but from Psalm 51. Verses 16 and 17. For you do not desire sacrifice. This is speaking of God, right? This is the psalmist speaking of it. It's uh, David. Uh, and it, you guys can read this, but it's when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone to Bathsheba. So this is right in the middle of David's sin um, when he's confronted with it. And he says, 
to God here, he says, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. And so he sets that up and he says, if I could get over my problems, if I could have my sin dealt with, I'd bring you these sacrifices if that's what dealt with it. But then he says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And what he's talking about is that God does not want that sacrifice when there's this heart that's wicked behind it. He doesn't want this sacrifice of you coming to church when there's a heart that's still wicked and needs to be dealt with. That's not what God is after. He's not after some discipline in your guys' life. He's not after some, you know, okay, I'll do a little bit for you and then I'm here with my heart. He's asking that we have this broken heart, which means we understand where we are with him. We understand our sin in our lives. And then it draws us to repentance. That contrite heart is a repentive heart. That's what he desires. That's the kind of sacrifice that God wants. And then the work that we do off of that is just, it's glory to him. Gives him glory. And so they needed to be clean before they start this process. And so going on, that says clean hands, and then it goes on to the correction part of it. The work with God, we got to have correction. If we don't have correction, there isn't love, right? Any of you guys' families, if you guys did not grow up with correction, how was that for you? Were you guys like, oh, I'll totally listen to anybody that has anything to say to me. You know, I'll obey whatever's told to me. You know, it doesn't work that way, does it? No, if you've grown up in a disciplined home, you have discipline in your life. You have this respect for authority most of the time. Some of us just completely rebel against that. But that's established in us. And so you see a loving parent when there is correction, when there is discipline done in the right way, you get to see this love that happens. And that's exactly what happens here in these verses 15 through 19. And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to to a heap of 20 ephods, that there were but 10. And one came to the wine vat to draw 50 baths from the press, but there were only but 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it, is the seed still in the barn as yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. So he goes through and says, guys, wake up. Things have not been so great in your life because I'm dealing with you. I'm trying to get you guys to come back. There's discipline that's happening. I love you. I want that relationship with you. Draw close to me. This, you need to wake up and see It's not just misfortune, bad luck. Satan's coming after me. This is me trying to chastise and show you I love you. There needs to be discipline. I'm not going to give you blessing in your sin. I want to bless you, but you need to come out of that. And that's why then he turns and he says, at the very last, but from this day I will bless you. As they turn back to him, that's where blessing comes, isn't it? And we all can testify that too in our own lives. We have a rotten life. We're living away from God. We have all these things. Yeah, it's up and down. Sometimes it's good. Most of the time it's bad. We're frustrated with what's going on in our lives. And we turn to him and say, here you go. Here is my broken and my repentive heart, Lord. And it's like, yes, it's restored. Now from this day forward is blessing. 
This is not a prosperity gospel. I guarantee you're probably not going to get you whatever car you're wanting or whatever life you're wanting, you know, that you think you need. God's going to pour out blessing on you because now you're his child and he can't wait to just pour out his blessings. The character is going to change. The situations in your life, your outlook, your perspective, your joy, your peace, all that changes. That's that blessing. And it doesn't, I love how he says, from this day, I will bless you. It's not on this day, I will bless you. Sometimes when we come back to the Lord and say, okay, I came back to you finally. What do you got for me? <laughs> you know? And then all of a sudden it's not there and it's like, see, I knew you didn't exist. I knew you weren't real or I knew you weren't a personal God. I proved you wrong. <laughs> Good on me. No, God's saying from this day forward, you've got to look for this blessing in your life. This will happen. God's going to work through and he's going to do awesome things. Now, when he goes through this and he's talking with the people, and this is one point I wanted to go back to, back over in verse 8, because I think it's a very important point, and uh, just to kind of get us to conclude in this message. When God calls us to a work, sometimes we'll say we're not able. He gives us the leaders we need, which we'll look at that in a second, when he goes through Zerubbabel and he gives them the signet ring, showing that he is the leadership for Israel at this time. We have all these, these things. We have the, the unity that we need, the clean hands, the correction and leadership. And a lot of times we're like, okay, where is the supplies for what we need to have? You know, are we ruling, willing, do we, where is that stuff? And that's when in verse 8, God says that the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. He's telling the people, I got this covered. It's on me. Put it on my account. Just like with our sin in Jesus Christ, he's got this. Put it on his account. But when he calls us out to that and he says, I have everything, do we really trust that he has everything? Because what will happen is that he wants to grow us up and he wants to grow us closer. He wants us to trust in him. He shows us many times that he's got us. That he's given us everything that we need, the job, whatever it is, the, the means to be able to make it. But then all of a sudden he'll say, can you give that all back to me? Can you give that all back to me? And still trust in me. There's this awesome story. You guys, I don't know if you guys have ever read this book. It's Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Awesome read. It's about Hudson Taylor, which was a missionary over in China. And he completely just rocked the missionary world because he did, some, did things so differently over there and ended up getting way far uh, deep into uh, China where all the other missionaries couldn't do that. And in this, what happens in the very first part that Hudson Taylor needs to work through some stuff in his life. He's a young man. He's going to college and... He's working on full-time, and he's at a job that he only gets paid quarterly, right? And I don't know if you guys have ever been to a job like this where you're, you're, you're waiting for that paycheck to come, and uh, all of a sudden the boss forgets, and now you've got to go a whole weekend, and you spent every cent because you thought you were getting a check that day, right? And now you're like, great, how am I going to make it through this weekend? To set up the story, that's what happens with this guy. Okay, Hudson Taylor is waiting, and now this is quarterly. So he spent his quarterly funds, and now he's waiting for all the new funds to come in. Well, he's, day after day, the Lord's challenging him, just wait for me. I don't want you to ask the, the boss for it. I just want you to trust in me. So he's thinking, okay, cool, Friday, I know I'm going to get it. Well, he gets to Saturday, and there's nothing there. He's just got a little coin. But that's going to be okay, because it'll make it till the next week when he can, you know, of course he's going to get paid then. But during that weekend, something big happens to him. And so he says, after... Concluding my last service about 10 o'clock that night, a poor man asked me to go and pray with his wife, saying that she was dying. I readily agreed, and on the way asked him why he had not sent for the priest. As his accent told me, he was an Irishman. 
He had done so, he said, but the priest refused to come without a payment of 18 pence, which the man did not possess at the fam- as the family was starving. Immediately it occurred to my mind that all the money I had in the world was the solitary half crown, which is about 20 pence, and that it was in one coin. Moreover, that while the basin of the water gruel I usually took for supper was awaiting me, and there was sufficient in the house for breakfast in the morning. I certainly had nothing for dinner on the coming day. So he's starting to go through what he has, and maybe he can give these people. He says, somehow or other, there was at once a stoppage in the flow of my joy in my heart. He'd just been out ministering, he's talking about all this joy, and he's excited, and all of a sudden it stops. But instead of reproving myself, I began to reprove the poor man, telling him that it was very wrong to have allowed matters to get in such a state as he described, and that he ought to have applied to the relieving officer. His answer was that he had done so, And he was told to come at 11 o'clock the next morning, but that he feared his wife might not live through the night. Ah, thought I, if only I had two shillings and a sixpence instead of this half crown, how gladly I would give these poor people a shilling. But to my part with the half crown was far from my thoughts. I little dreamed that the truth of the matter simply was that I could trust God plus one sixpence, but was not prepared to trust him only without any money at all in my pocket. My conductor led me out into the court, down which I followed him, and with some degree in nervousness, I found myself there before, and at last my visit had been roughly handled. Up a miserable flight of stairs in wretched room, he led me, and oh, what a sight there presented itself. Four or five children stood about, their sunken cheeks and temples telling unmistakably the story of slow starvation. And lying on a wretched pallet was a poor, exhausted mother with a tiny infant, 36 hours old, moaning rather than crying at her side. Ah, oh, thought I, if I had two shillings and a sixpence instead of a half crown, how gladly should they have one sixpence of it. But still, the wretched unbelief prevented me from obeying the impulse to re- relieve their distress at the cost of all I possessed. I will scarcely seem, it will scarcely seem strange that I was unable to say much to comfort these poor people. I need to comfort myself. I began to tell them, however, that they must not be cast down, that through their circumstances were very distressing, there was a kind and loving Father in heaven. But something within me cried, you hypocrite, telling these unconverted people about a kind and loving Father in heaven and not prepared yourself to trust him without half a crown. I nearly choked. How gladly I would have com- compromised with conscience if I had a florin and a sixpence. So basically, if you had two coins... I would have given the florin, thankfully, and kept the rest, but I was not yet prepared to trust God alone without the sixpence. And he goes on and he starts saying, if I could just pray for them, and he prays for them, and he just feels horrible. And in the end, he ends up giving them the half crown as he just tortures them through this whole thing. It ends up that it saved the woman's life, that she was able to go on living. But it was this whole challenge that God was taking Hudson Taylor through and challenging him, you have this faith in me that I'm going to do this work in you and I'm going to provide everything that's needed. Can you give me it all? So many times he asks us in our own lives, you guys want blessing from me. You want me to have some control of your life, but I'm asking you for all of it. Can you trust me with all of your life? Are you only content with half of it? Are you only content with half of the building built? Or do you want it all built? Are you content with the old ways and, and how it used to be? Or do you want to see new things in God and this testimony that he has for you now and today that he wants you to be a part of? 
but he's asking for it all, and that's a hard, hard question for us. Just like Hudson Taylor, even though it was just a little money thing, it's a lot of trust that has to be thrown on God that, yeah, I'm going to trust you with everything that I have. I'm going to walk in your ways. I'm going to focus on what you have for me. And the cool thing is, guys, there's blessing that comes. That as soon as you make that commitment to him and you say, okay, Lord, I'm done with myself. I want you to take everything. Here you go. From that day forward comes blessing. Right? Us that have taken that step, I mean, we can say, yes, that's absolutely what's happened in my life. There's been trials, there's been things that he's promised, there's been suffering, but I have seen blessing like I've never seen it in my whole life. When I was in control of my own life, I never saw things like I see them now. I've never had the joy that I have now, I've never had the peace that I have now, but it took me giving it all. I couldn't just stand by and be that religious person and hope that if I touched a little bit of holiness that it would wipe off on me when there was sin that needed to be dealt with and a complete just deliverance to God for my whole life and saying, there you go, I trust you fully. The worship team wants to come back up. We'll go ahead and pray. And I hope you guys are encouraged and as you walk throughout the weeks and, and you guys, we, we go through the scriptures, we hear great messages from God. But this morning, if he's speaking to you guys, don't delay the thing is, you keep pushing him off, and you don't want that. You don't want him to take fully over in your life. After a while, he's going to start, stop asking. He's going to let that conscience get seared, and, and, and he's going to be like, okay, if you want your own ways, I'm sorry. It's a sad story. He's there to deliver us. He's there to bring us out. He wants to bring correction. He wants to clean our hands. He wants to set up a leadership in our life. He wants to bring all these blessings to our lives. But if we want nothing to do it and we don't want to give it all to him, he's not going to force his way in, right? He's a loving God. So let's pray. Lord, we love you. And Lord, I just want to lift up the people that you're speaking so strongly to. And uh, just the, the repentant heart that's needed, Lord, that, that broken heart of coming to you and understanding and being truthful of where they're at, Lord. They'd stop lying to themselves and saying that they've got it. And uh, Lord, even those that have been walking so long in just a religion and trying to do the things that you want out of them and be good and do this, go here. And Lord, that they would see that it's just about that relationship with you, growing so close to you. And Lord, I pray that we'd be able to give up that last half crown. Lord, we'd be able to give everything over to you and trust that you have us. We wouldn't trust in the ways that we've set up or the things that we've established and our own means, Lord, but it would be a full trust in you that we say, Lord, you can have every bit of my life. I'm ready to follow you. Lord, I pray that they would just say that to you. Just as they're thinking this, be a commitment between them and you. Be such a powerful, awesome thing, Lord, in this testimony in their life and that this would be the day, that from this day on they'd have blessing from you because of them turning to you and you choosing them, Lord. We just praise you for all the things you're doing in our lives, Lord, and we thank you so much for the blessings you do pour out on us every single day. And Lord, we just want to glorify you through that. We want to bring you pleasure. And so help us and continue to build your ministries, to build our lives to you, Lord, and that we would just follow after you every single day. And we pray this in your name. Amen.